Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There is so much going on in our short little gospel lesson today uh, that we just need to dig right into it. Jesus and the disciples we read are in Caesarea Philippi, and that's about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. So they are a far way away from Jerusalem. And this question arises, who do people say that the Son of Man is? This question and the answer to this question is where Jesus has been leading his disciples going back to the fourth chapter of Matthew. This is like a whole unit between chapter 4 and chapter 16, verse 20, is this question, who is this Jesus of Nazareth? Is he a prophet? What's the nature of his ministry? What exactly has he come to do? We see the miracles, and we see multitudes of people following him. But we also see multitudes of people rejecting him and his message and turning away. We see uh, whole cities that that refuse to, to believe. We see John the baptizer, this great pivotal figure, the forerunner of Christ, We've seen that he uh, preaches. He's a forerunner. He's not even worthy to untie the sandals of Christ. Yet John was then imprisoned. And then when he was in prison, remember, he sent word to Jesus saying, are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? Then, of course, John was beheaded by Herod. So all of these these questions, these are all contained in the, the gospel. And they're leading up to this this mountaintop, this, this precipice. Who is Jesus, really? And thus, this question that Jesus asked, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And their answer, well, some say John the Baptist. That's the Son of Man. Some say Elijah. Others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Okay, that's what others say about who Jesus is, but Jesus asked then pointedly to the disciples, to the apostles that are there with him, the apostles, okay, but who do you say that I am? Those that are closest to him, those that are, that are in his inner circle. There were lots of disciples, but there were 12 apostles. Who do you say that I am? And from that question comes this confession that is so well known, this confession that Simon Peter gives, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Yes, that is, that is the top of the mountain. This is where he has been leading them this whole time to this confession of who Jesus really is. He is the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus of Nazareth. Yes, that Jesus. He's the one who's anointed by God, the Savior of Israel. That's what the Messiah is, the Savior of Israel, the one that is prophesied in the Old Testament, going all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Remember? The Proto-Evangelion, as it's called, the very first gospel that comes in Genesis 3, when when, uh, God said to Satan that the seed of the woman, you will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. That's 
the first gospel. That's the first point in the Old Testament, pointing forward to Jesus Christ. And the rest of the uh, Old Testament bears witness to this, that Jesus, that the Christ would be this, this, the, the Christ would come and that the Christ would be a savior of the people. Now the connection that's being made is Jesus is the Christ. Knowing that is to be atop of this mountain. And it's not something that natural man can apprehend on his own. Not in intelligence condition. Jesus says that. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. He, Bar-Jonah just means son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. In other words, this is not something that Simon Peter could figure out on his own. But God the Father revealed this to him through the word. He's been hearing the word of God because Jesus has been saying it to him. Now he hears it and God the Father works faith in him. And when he said, blessed are you, think saved are you. Because it could be translated that way just as well. Saved are you, Simon. Why? Because you recognize that Jesus of Nazareth is the long-awaited Christ, the one that you have been waiting for, the Redeemer of the Israelites and all of the world. Now, keep in mind also, does Simon understand what it means to be the Christ at this point? Well, our lesson for next week is going to pick up right on the heels of this one, starting verse 21. And spoiler alert, but if you're reading the lectionary ahead and seeing what's coming, then you know what's coming. It's the one where Simon says, Jesus says, I'm, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and suffer and die. And Simon says, no, Jesus, that can't happen. We can't do that. To which Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Yeah, so today, Simon Peter makes this confession. You are the Christ, even though he doesn't understand fully what it means to be the Christ. Nevertheless, that's the confession that saves Jesus went on then with three promises, three promises he made. Number one, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Number two, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And number three, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. He says more about that, but that's just the summary of that third promise. So first, let's understand the rock on which the church is built. For that, we can just recall the words of our hymn, Built on the Rock. It is a sermon hymn that teaches us about this. He says, you are Peter, Petras, and on this rock, Petra, Jesus will build the church. Simon is the first person, by the way, in recorded history to be given the name Peter. This has never been applied as a name. You can't find any ancient writing where this is given as a person's name, which is interesting because... There's a lots of Peters around now, but Simon is given this name, Peter, Petros in the Greek, and on this Petra, I will build the church. So then the question comes up, is Simon? He's given a name, Peter, which means rock. So does that mean that Simon is the rock on which the church is built? And some say, yeah, that's exactly what that means. That's what the papists say. I mean, that, that's the whole line of argument that the Roman Catholic Church makes is that Simon Peter is the rock and that on Simon Peter is established, in Simon Peter is established the, the office of Pope and that uh, every succession of Pope since then is, the, is the, this rock continuing to, for the church to be built on. There's so many problems with that. 
understanding, obviously, because we're not papists. If we believe that that was true, well, then we should be in that church. But we don't. Why? Well, number one, grammatically, it doesn't work. Petros and Petra do not agree. They have to agree grammatically. Petra is neuter. Petros is masculine. That's one thing. Secondly, grammatically and logically, if Jesus wanted to say, Simon, uh, you, are, you are Peter, and on you I will build the church. Well, you can say that in Greek pretty easily. It's not hard to say. It's, you just say, yeah, you're Peter, and on you I'll build the church. But he didn't say that, which leads me to believe he's not building his church on Simon Peter. The other thing we have to consider is, who is Simon Peter, and what exactly do we know about him? Well, as I mentioned earlier, Next week, we're going to hear about how he told Jesus, no, you can't go to the cross and suffer and die. And Jesus had to say, get behind me, Satan. We also know that he denied Jesus three times. Uh, We also know that he went back to fishing after Jesus was crucified. Peter had to come and restore him, which he did. He came and he restored Simon Peter. Remember when he said, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Tend my sheep. Yeah, so... So he had to be restored from that. Now, that doesn't sound like a really solid rock on which to build the church that the gates of hell will never prevail against it. So for a variety of reasons, we reject this assertion, and that's what it is, this assertion that Peter is a rock on which the church is built. Now, that doesn't take away from the role and the work of the apostles. The apostles recorded for us and were used by the Holy Spirit to record for us the New Testament, the keys to understanding and to knowing that Christ, that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. So, of course, the church is built on that, is built on the teaching of the apostles. So there is a sort of connection there. And by the way, this is kind of an aside, but if Jesus wanted to avoid all confusion, he could have said, upon this rock, I will build the church. He could have said lithos instead of Petra. It also has the same meaning as a stone. But he didn't say that. So it seems like, yeah, Jesus did mean some connection there. We just have to be careful in how we understand that connection. He's not building the church on Simon Peter, but he's building him on the confession that he is the Christ. And he's building it on the teaching of the apostles. This is what we confess and when we say the one holy and apostolic faith that we believe in. You know, it's, it's the faith we've received through the apostles. So he is building the church on the apostles too. And how is this church built? Through ordinary means, word and sacrament. The foundation of the church is Jesus himself, true. But the church is built on this confession that Jesus is the Christ. And that faith comes through the means of grace. That's why I say go back to the hymn we sung, 645, built on the rock. The altar the font, the word. That's how the church is built, by the, through the means of grace, the means by which God comes to us and works faith. Remember, my word will not return to me void, but will accomplish that which I purpose. All right, that's the first promise. But by the way, the second and third promises, I will be briefer on. The second promise, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It's funny because you don't think about gates of hell like coming out and attacking. 
So it's obviously a, a symbol of something. What does it mean? Well, the gates of hell, it, 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 it evokes this image of Satan's minions busting through the gates and coming out and assaulting the church. Does that mean that they won't do that? Does that mean that Satan's minions will not assault the church? They will. They will assault the church. And what will happen? We've been learning about this in Acts as we read through Acts and we see that every time there's persecution, the church spreads out from Jerusalem. And what does it do? It's like fighting a fire with a fan like this. And all you're doing is fanning the flames and this fire's getting more and more out of control. Gosh, I don't know what to do. I keep pouring gasoline on the fire and it just keeps getting bigger. You know, that's what's happening is that, is that the word of God is, is, is going out. And that even though the, the assaults, the, through the assaults of the devil, they will not prevail against the church. It's just a promise. We see this come to life lively in the martyrs. Think about the martyrs. They withstood, their, their faith remained steadfast. They withstood even to the point of death. And as the saying uh, goes, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The church grows from persecution. All right, the third promise. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And indeed, the church has been given keys to unlock the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to unlock the kingdom of heaven? It means to preach the forgiveness of sins. It means to bring people forward here to this font and to apply God's word of promise by water and the word to them, declaring unto them, not me, although God will use me as a mouthpiece, not me, but God saying, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Wash clean of your sins. What other keys do we have? The, the table. You receive Christ's very body and blood for the forgiveness of your sins. Because Jesus promised, again, not because I'm, not to pick on, I'm picking on the Roman Catholics today. Not just to pick on them, but, you know, they have this idea of indelible character that the priest has an indelible character that's bestowed on ordination that gives them the ability, actually not the right, but the ability to consecrate the elements and actually produce Christ's body and blood. Of course, when you have a scandal within your church, all kinds of nefarious things occurring, it's not just a matter of a black eye that your church gets. It's your whole theology is crumbling because what happened to that indelible character you're supposed to have that makes all this work? Okay, so no, but that's wrong. It's not, this, it's not my indelible character. My family will tell you all about that. That's not what does it. It's God's word, his word of promise. That's what uh, we appeal to. So the keys uh, come through absolution, through those very words, your sins are forgiven. The contrite heart that says, have mercy on me, a sinner. And we all, all Christians hold key that you can turn and loosen their sins. And what the text says, do not go with the ESV translation here. I, I will give you the better one. What, what it will have been bound. That, that's, what it, that's what we want to say. It will have been bound. It will have been loosed. 
I give you the keys. And whatever you bind on earth, it will have already been bound in heaven. I give you the keys. And whatever you loose on earth, active, present, now, will have already been loosed in heaven. It's kind of a weird grammatical thing going on, which is why they translate it the way that they do. But the point is, what, when, when someone says to you, your sins are forgiven in Christ, there is a loosening, there is a key being turned and, and a loosening of your sins and forgiveness is happening right here, right now. And the promise is that in heaven, it will have already been forgiven. So these three promises. Now, Article 7 of the Augsburg Confession. Also, they teach that one holy church is to continue forever. The church is the congregation of saints in which the gospel is rightly taught and the sacraments are rightly administered. End of article. By the way, read the Augsburg Confession. It's actually pretty short. You can read it like, you know, pretty easily. But just read it. That's, that's the simplest statement of our understanding of the scriptures and what they teach. And there's Article 7 about what the church is. Did you catch that? What is the church? It is the place where the sacraments are rightly administered and the word is properly taught. That is the church. Doesn't necessarily look like a beautiful cathedral, although there's nothing wrong with fine architecture, especially if you have a nice church that, 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 set, that, that evokes the transcendence of God, you know, I mean, I love a cathedral. That's great. But it's just saying it doesn't have to be a cathedral. Okay, it doesn't necessarily look that way. It doesn't necessarily look like scores of people. I, there can be. That's great. I hope for the church to grow. I hope for people to receive the word of God. But we don't test God's promises by saying, well, gee, there's not as many people here today as there were last night or whatever. We don't look and say, well... You know, I don't know, Joel Osteen, I listen to what he's saying. It sounds kind of sketchy, but I mean, look, he's got 15,000 people at his church every Sunday. Well, there's like, you know, 10 million people that watch Monday Night Football. That doesn't, you know, it doesn't always equate to anything. You know, it doesn't mean to make them Christians. That's not the building of the church. Sometimes the church might be a hut with a thatched roof in a jungle with two or three people gathered at risk of their life to be there, to be present, they risk their lives, that might be the church. And what this is saying, what Jesus is saying here is that the same spiritual foundation upon which their church is built is the same foundation upon which the entire church is built. It's a spiritual foundation. It's the confession that Jesus is the Christ that he has died for your sins. That's the foundation. It's not anything that you can see. This is the true church where the gospel is rightly taught, where the sacraments are rightly administered. That's where the foundation is present, the spiritual foundation of the church. You don't need to be a builder to know how important a foundation is. Supports the entire structure. Everything rests on the foundation. So if you don't get the foundation right, guess what? Oh, you can have really pretty carpet. <laughs> no, if you don't get the foundation right, the whole structure is compromised. 
foundation has to be right. And that's what Jesus is saying here, is that the foundation is not in the externals. This brings to mind another thing we talked about this, this morning. When God called David, he said to Samuel, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart, the inward heart. You see, there's things that aren't always seen, but we have this word of promise, these three, three promises that Jesus makes. So when you come to church, you receive forgiveness of sins. His promise is being fulfilled every Sunday. Come and receive. Hear the word. Receive the sacrament of the altar. And do not be unbelieving, but believe and trust that this is what church is. This is the foundation that the church is built on. This confession of Jesus Christ. Even if you don't have everything right, as I said, Simon Peter didn't have everything right. I gave you a number of examples where he really messed up pretty badly. I mean, having Jesus say, get behind me, Satan, is pretty rough stuff. But Jesus loved Simon Peter, just like he loves you, even though you don't do everything just right. Just believe that. Hear that and believe it and know that in Christ, all of your sins are forgiven. Thanks be to God. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus.